This week, Americans will gather for Thanksgiving. The Thanksgiving holiday is one of those yearly reminders that our nation has a great Christian heritage, certainly an imperfect Christian heritage, but the influence of the Christian faith on our nation, on its formation, on its government, its culture, its institutions, is undeniable. It is simply a historical fact, and indeed, I would say the influence of the Christian faith, the influence of the gospel upon the American people, upon our nation, is really the key to our success as a nation, as a people. Uh, Most of us probably know something about the story behind the first Thanksgiving in 1621, the pilgrims gathered to give thanks to their creator for all the blessings that he had granted to them. Uh, Of the 102 people who came over on the Mayflower, only 53 were left by that next fall, but those 53 knew they had a lot to be thankful for, and so they came together and celebrated God's goodness with a feast. In doing so, the pilgrims established a tradition that would come to be woven into the very fabric of American identity, woven into the very fabric of American culture and American character. The early part of our nation's history is absolutely littered with these kinds of public celebrations of thanksgiving, where uh, people would come together corporately uh, to give God thanks. In the early part of our nation's history, you can find many acts of Congress setting aside special days for prayer for the confession of sin for thanksgiving. So to give you an example of this, on December 18th, 1877, Congress set aside a day of thanksgiving for the American people to, quote, express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the divine, to the service of their divine benefactor. Okay, can you imagine Congress today passing an act with that kind of language? But it gets even better. This Declaration of Congress from 1877 goes on to say that they might also make penitent confession of their manifold sins, that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ mercifully to forgive and blot them out of remembrance. Further, in this act in 1877, Congress uh, reminded Americans or recommended that Americans petition God to, again, quote, prosper the means of religion for the promotion and enlargement of that kingdom which consists in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. What a beautiful declaration, a a beautiful call from Congress uh, to the American people to give God thanks. Give me another example of this. In October of 1780, when Benedict Arnold's traitor's plot was uncovered and uh, the war efforts for independence preserved Congress, again, appointed a national day of thanksgiving and prayer. That declaration reads this way in part. It is therefore recommended to the several states to set apart Thursday, the seventh day of December next, to be observed as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, to confess our unworthiness of the least of God's favors, and to offer our fervent supplications to the God of all grace, that it may please him to pardon our heinous transgressions and incline our hearts for the future to keep all his laws, that it may please him still to afford us his blessings and to build up his churches in their most holy faith and to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. 
Here's an act of Congress calling on the American people to, again, confess their sins, to give God thanks, and, and to work for the spread of the Christian faith across the whole earth. Note how explicitly Christian these proclamations are. You know, this is not setting aside time to pray to an unknown God or an unnamed God. These declarations of Congress are explicitly Christian, and they include confessions of sin. They include a call upon the people of the nation to obey God. Uh, At the end of the War for Independence, Congress again declared a special day of thanksgiving. And again, there was never any question which God they were giving thanks to. The proclamation included words that thanked God, that called God the supreme ruler of all human events, and acknowledged that God has been, quote, pleased to continue to us the light of the blessed gospel. That was your Congress speaking back in um, when the the War for Independence was concluded. Uh, At the time that the U.S. Constitution was ratified, it's interesting to note that nine of the 13 original states that formed the United States of America, nine of the original 13 states had established churches of various Protestant denominations, which when you consider that, it puts the First Amendment in a really different light than most of the discussion today people have about the First Amendment. Many states throughout their history have regularly had special days of prayer and thanksgiving set aside, and that includes the state of Alabama. In fact, Alabama established an annual Thanksgiving holiday in 1858, which was five years before it became a national sort of standardized federal holiday. Uh, This may be one you also know about. President George Washington made a famous Thanksgiving proclamation in 1789, and it read uh, in part this way. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor, there is to be a day of public thanksgiving and prayer, observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. What is President George Washington saying here? He's saying every nation has the duty to obey God, to obey his laws, to obey God's will. Further, every nation has the obligation to give God thanks, to publicly observe the fact that God has blessed us in all kinds of ways, with all kinds of benefits, with all kinds of favors. Again, there's nothing secular or religiously ambiguous or religiously neutral about thanksgiving historically considered in America. Now think about this. You've heard from uh, these different acts of Congress and and from our first president under uh, our current constitution. If we did not already have an annual Thanksgiving Day celebration as an American custom, Do you think you could get our current government to make a national proclamation, a national holiday, a day set aside for giving God thanks? Do you think you could get the current regime to do that? I don't think so. And I think part of the reason for that would be this whole question, who are we thanking? Who are we giving thanks to? And see, that's part of the problem we have. For many Americans today, the Thanksgiving holiday is just a hollow shell of what it once was and what it should be. Unless we are explicitly thanking the triune God of Scripture, 
the God who created us, who made us male and female in his image, the God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. There's really no point in it. If we're not thanking this God, the, the, the God who made us, the God who gave us the Bible, the God who sent his son, if we're not thanking this God, what are we doing? What are we doing? There's nothing to it. See, nothing is more important than for individuals, for families, and even for nations to thank God, to thank the true and living God. The reality is that thanking God is the foundation of human life and, and a healthy human society. It's significant that uh, as American Christians, we thank God personally. That's incredibly significant. But as American Christians, we should also want our nation to express thanksgiving to God, as we have done so in our past. National thanksgiving is important as well. In the announcements this morning, in my opening exhortation, I made reference to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. And those verses are so important. In that part of Romans 1, you really have Paul's analysis of how human societies disintegrate and come under God's judgment. There's this movement from ingratitude to idolatry to immorality. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing fallen man's idolatry. And how does he describe that idolatry? He says, man fails to honor and thank God. All men know God because God has plainly revealed himself. He's clearly revealed himself in the things that he has made. And so all men are obligated to thank this God, to glorify this God. And yet when men refuse to do so, when they suppress that truth in unrighteousness, that's when the wrath of God uh, is poured out upon them. And it's interesting, you come to the end of that passage in Romans chapter 1, all the sins that Paul lists there. He lists sins like envy and strife and murder and pride and disobeying parents and on and on. He has a lengthy list of sins there. For Paul, all of those sins, that whole catalog of sins, all those sins he lists are really downstream from this sin of refusing to thank God. That's really where things go wrong is in this failure to thank God. A, a nation or a culture that refuses to thank God is ripe for judgment. George Washington said so. George Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to obey God's will. And God's will includes giving him thanks. The first sin Paul identifies, the sin from which all other sins flow, is this refusal to thank God. And if you understand why Thanksgiving is so important, you really have to go back to the Garden of Eden. You really have to go back to the fall of our first parents, Adam and his wife. There are many ways to look at that first sin in Genesis chapter 3, but here's one way to think about it. Adam and his wife sinned, how? By eating the forbidden fruit. They sinned by eating. They sinned by eating a meal they should not have eaten. Now, as Christians, think about this. What do we do before each meal? What do we train our kids to do before each meal? We give thanks before eating. We're going to eat a meal this morning called the Lord's Supper. What do we do before that meal? Before we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're going to give thanks. In fact, we're going to double up the thanksgiving. We'll give thanks over the bread and then eat it and then give thanks over the cup and then share it just as Jesus did, just as Jesus taught us. Giving thanks before eating is an absolutely basic Christian practice. It's also exactly what Adam and his wife 
failed to do in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and his wife did not say grace before their meal in the garden. That was their sin. If they had given thanks, they would have quickly realized, oh wait, we can't eat this fruit. We can't give God thanks for what God has forbidden. We can't give thanks and commit idolatry at the same time. If they had stopped to give thanks, it would have stopped them in their tracks. So you need to see here, a Christian custom like thanking God before meals, that's no small thing. Thanking God before meals is an antidote to idolatry. It's a way of doing right what Adam and Eve did wrong. It's one of those Christian practices that creates a true and thriving civilization and indeed protects civilization from God's wrath. Giving God thanks is the bedrock of human life. We are to build our lives upon giving God thanks. Again, this is Paul's teaching. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, refusal to thank God is the essence of sin. Why is thanking God so important? It's so important because everything we have comes from God. We have nothing that we have not received, which means there is nothing in your life you should not be giving thanks for. Giving thanks is the humble acknowledgement of our utter and complete dependence upon God. We thank God for who He is and for all He gives, for all His gifts. And indeed, everything is a gift, absolutely everything. If you won't thank God, you are an idolater. If you won't thank God, that's because you are putting yourself in God's place. You are making yourself out to be God. Say, I don't need to thank God. And then you take credit for anything or everything that you are, everything that you have. That is the essence of idolatry. That is the essence of sin. And it really means you're out of touch with reality. See, thanking God is a way of touching grass. You know, we have that expression, kind of get back in touch with reality. Thanking God is a way of touching grass. It brings you back into touch with reality. It puts you in touch with the way things really are. That God is the giver. And you are the receiver. And so you're to give God thanks. There are many places in Scripture that teach us how to give God thanks and further unfold why we ought to give God thanks. We read Psalm 100 this morning. Psalm 100 is actually titled as a psalm of thanksgiving. And it was used at various feasts and festivals. It was used for public declarations of thanksgiving in ancient Israel. That'd be a great one to read or sing around the table this Thursday. It really summarizes the, 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 the kinds of praise and thanksgiving that, that, that God's people should direct towards him. Or, or think about Jesus' teaching on thanksgiving. That story we read from Luke chapter 17 is a great story about thanksgiving. You've got ten lepers who are crying out to Jesus for healing. They all get healed. Jesus gives them what they have asked for, but only one of the ten returns to give thanks. That's probably about the right ratio for how things really are, right? People so often are ungrateful for what they have been given. But Jesus there is showing in that story how important it is to give thanks. There is something terribly incongruent about receiving from Jesus without returning thanks to him. If you have received from, you need to return to you receive benefits from Jesus, you need to return thanks to Jesus. That's how it should work. The Apostle Paul, I think you could call him the Apostle of Thanksgiving. 
uh, because Paul's letters are filled with references to thanksgiving, a whole theology of giving thanks. We already made reference to Romans chapter 1, which is all about thanking God versus idolatry. I mean, those are really your two choices. You either thank God or you're an idolater. That's it. Those are your only two choices. But it's really interesting to me. If you take all of Paul's letters together, you'll find that over 50 times in his 14 letters, he mentions thanksgiving. So you could say this really is a major theme in his work. And many times, Paul is actually the one who's doing the thanking. He's not just calling upon us to be thankful, but Paul is actually the one who is expressing thanksgiving. Uh, And I think that thanksgiving is uh, a major theme in Colossians. We read several little portions of Colossians, several little pieces of his letter to the Colossians. I'm going to walk you through each one of those here this morning so you can see this. Actually, I'm going to start with one we didn't read, which is from the very beginning of the letter in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, Paul opens the letter by saying, in chapter 1 verse 3, he says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So Paul tells the Colossians right out of the gate, he says, I pray for you, and when I pray for you, I give God thanks for you. Paul did not plant this church. He did not personally know these Christians, but he had heard about them. He goes on to say, we have heard about your faith, your hope, your love, and so we give God thanks for you. We thank God that he has worked in you in this way. The way Paul opens the letter to the Colossians, this is actually just one of many places where Paul gives thanks for his fellow Christians, where Paul gives thanks for a particular congregation. Just listen to some of these examples from other letters of Paul, from Romans chapter 1. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I thank my God always concerning you. That one's impressive to me because, you know, if you read Corinthians, you see what a mess that church was. (laughs) Just a complete disaster uh, of a church. And Paul still can start off the letter by saying, by saying, I thank my God always concerning you. Philippians chapter 1, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That is, every time I think of you, I give God thanks for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we are bound to thank God always for you. Later in 2 Thessalonians, he says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Basically, he repeats this thanksgiving. 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank God as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers day and night. So he writes to Timothy, he says, I'm praying day and night, and as I do so, as I'm praying for you, I am thanking God for you. Philemon, verses 4 and 5, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. You get this sense that Paul's constantly in prayer, And how is he praying? He's giving thanks. And what is he thanking God for? He's thanking God for his fellow Christians. He's thanking God for these churches. I think that's a great model for us. Clearly, this is a pattern. Paul thanks God for his fellow believers. He thanks God for these churches. That's something we should do as well. We should thank God for one another. I'm certainly thankful for you all. I trust and hope you're thankful for one another. As you gather around the table for Thanksgiving this week, be thankful for your fellow believers at the table with you. That's what Paul is showing us here. And why do we give God thanks for other believers? Why do we give God thanks for the churches? Because people coming to faith in Jesus, a church being formed, a church growing, all of that is ultimately 
God's work. It is God's doing. Paul doesn't say, I thank you, Colossians, that you produced your own faith and your own hope and your own love. No, he says, I thank God that he worked these virtues in you. I thank God for working in you in such a way to form you into a church and to grow you as his people in this way. We should give God thanks for that. We'll go on to Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that we should abound in thanksgiving. We should be overflowing with thanksgiving. We should live in such a way that our lives are constantly overflowing with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should be a habit. It should be a routine. It should be a way of life for us. You know, think about you parents with little ones. You're teaching your children to say thank you. And you realize, you know, maybe sometimes their heart's not really in it. But by imposing that discipline of expressing thanks, by imposing that discipline on them, that you've got to say thank you when somebody does something for you, you are training them in this habit, this practice. And of course, you hope that the heart then follows and the heart's in it. Okay, But Thanksgiving has to be a habit. It has to be a pattern of life for the Christian. We should abound in Thanksgiving. Well, Paul explains uh, especially why in, uh, really, this, the argument here starts in Colossians 1, but in this part of Colossians 2, he really explains why we should abound with thanksgiving. He says, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So you have received Christ as Lord, and so now walk in his lordship, and the way you do that is by abounding in thanksgiving. We should abound in thanksgiving because Jesus is Lord, and we have received Jesus as our Lord. We should abound in thanksgiving because we have Jesus, and in having Jesus, we have everything we could possibly need. Think about that. You have everything you could possibly need in Christ Jesus, in Christ the Lord. He is our all in all. Paul here is saying, as you have received him as Lord, so walk under his lordship. As you have received him as a gift, so walk in that gift. And the way that you do that is by giving him thanks. And that means giving thanks in all circumstances because Christ is always with you. Remember, Paul is writing this letter that's so full of thanksgiving. He's writing this letter from prison. You know, it's really astounding if you read Philippians, and that letter's so full of joy, and then you remember, oh yeah, Paul's writing from prison, and he's full of joy. Well, here again, Paul's writing from prison, and he's full of thanksgiving. He's constantly mentioning thanksgiving in Colossians the same way he constantly mentions joy in Philippians. And Paul's undergoing a great trial. He is suffering. You know, it's not just like Paul thought, well, you know, I'm in prison here. I've got some free time. Maybe I'll dash off a few letters. No, Paul is suffering in prison. And as he suffers, he says, you know what? I need to write to the other churches and encourage them. I need to write to the other churches and uh, these struggling Christian congregations. And, and I need to disciple them. I need to remind them how to live the Christian life in a hostile host culture. That's really the purpose of his letters. That's really what he's doing with the Colossians. The Colossians were a Christian congregation threatened from all sides. The Colossian Christians were threatened from every direction. Every direction. The Romans didn't like them. The Jews didn't like them. The pagans didn't like them and were constantly pressuring them and tempting them. 
And so, of course, their lives were full of affliction and hardship and persecution. They needed encouragement. They needed discernment. They needed courage. They needed to persevere against all kinds of opposition. They needed resiliency. Paul doesn't want them to be afraid. And so he points them to Jesus. That's really what Colossians is about. You've got a fearful church, and so Paul writes to them a letter about Jesus. And in the first chapter, and it really leads over into this part of Colossians 2 that we read, in that first chapter, he presents Jesus as the one through whom all things have been made and through whom God has accomplished his redemption. He presents Jesus as the cosmic ruler. And as cosmic ruler, as head over all things, as ruler over all things, Jesus can take care of his own. Jesus can take care of his people. That's really the the theme you come away from in chapter 1. Christ rules over all, and that's why we're to live with thankful hearts instead of fearful hearts. That's why we can abound in thanksgiving instead of abounding in anxiety. Because we know Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the cosmic king. Jesus is sitting on the throne. That's really been Paul's point in the letter up to this point. Let me illustrate this, how this gives us a a spirit of thanksgiving and a spirit that is free from fear and anxiety. Uh, Many of you have heard me talk before about a book by uh, Edwin Friedman called Failure of Nerve. And it's not a Christian book, but it's a book I would recommend, especially to men, to read. I think it's a very helpful book. Uh, Edwin Friedman's book, Failure of Nerve, it's really on leadership. And, and Friedman makes the point that good leadership, whether in the home or a business or a nation, good leadership wherever, good leadership relieves anxiety. A good leader will relieve the anxiety of those he leads. Good leaders have a calming effect on those they lead. If the leader himself is overly anxious, What is that going to do? That's going to intensify everybody else's anxiety. Uh, If the leader's overly anxious, that's going to rub off on everybody else, and they're going to become even more anxious than they were already. But if the leader is calm, cool, and collected, that's going to rub off on everybody else, and that's going to relieve people's anxiety. You know, think about a, a quarterback coming into the huddle Uh, You know, there's a minute to go. They've got to drive the length of the field to score the winning touchdown. You want your quarterback to come into the huddle and be calm and confident, and that's going to inspire calmness and confidence in the rest of the players. That's what you want in a leader. So in the face of tense situations, leaders have to be a non-anxious presence for their people. That is how Friedman describes it. I've kind of summarized Friedman this way. Uh, Friedman's basic point is, If you want to lead, you've always got to be the calmest person in the room. That's how you lead, because your calmness, your non-anxious presence, that that kind of creates an anxiety-free environment in which you can actually make good decisions and get things done. The problem is this. Every human leader, so every father, every CEO, every president, is going to have certain limitations. A merely human leader only has so much he can do. In fact, sometimes a leader is going to face a problem that he cannot solve. The problem is too big for him, and everybody knows it. And then what? Then what do you do? Well, I think what Paul is showing the Colossians and what we need to see in our own day is there is a leader who never faces a problem too big. 
There's only one such leader, but you know who that is. It's Jesus. There is one leader who never faces a problem too big. One leader who is always perfectly in control. One leader who is calm, cool, and collected always. There is one leader who is always a non-anxious, calming presence for his people, and that is Jesus. That's because he's not a mere man, he's also God. And he's not a mere leader, he's the king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he is the calmest man in the universe. Jesus is the calmest presence in the universe. Other leaders might get anxious. Other leaders will falter and fail, but not Jesus. Jesus never will. Jesus never has a failure of nerve. Think about this. Jesus is sitting on the throne of the universe, ruling over all things, And here we are, you know, we're down here. We can get real anxious about a lot of different things. Jesus is sitting on his throne, ruling over the whole universe, and Jesus has no problems. Jesus has no anxiety. Jesus has no stress. Jesus is always at peace. Jesus is always full of joy. Jesus is always utterly confident. Jesus is always in charge. And so if you're looking to Jesus as your leader, if you are looking to Jesus as your king, then guess what? You've got this calming presence in your life. You've got this non-anxious leader, this non-anxious presence with you always. And so trusting him, walking in him, walking in Christ as Lord, the way Paul describes here, takes your anxieties away. Thanking Jesus, abounding in thanksgiving towards Jesus, relieves your stress. The thanksgiving chases the anxiety away. The thanksgiving chases the stress away. Why? Because when you thank Jesus, you are acknowledging that he is in charge. You're acknowledging that he is the Lord. You're acknowledging that he is the cosmic ruler. And when he is your leader, what that means is, you know, he's calm up in heaven. That means you can be calm down here on earth. Jesus takes your anxieties away. This is so important for us to understand, and it's so important for the church to preach this, to teach this, to model this in our culture, because let's face it, we live in a culture that, you know, it kind of feels like a powder keg, and one spark is all it's going to take to just cause a gigantic explosion in our culture. That's what it feels like. There's so much reactivity and, and negativity and so much anxiety in our culture. We live in a culture that is constantly racked with anxiety. And part of the reason for that, where that anxiety comes from, part of the reason for that is because nobody really knows who's in charge. Quite honestly, nobody really knows who's in charge. And the people who are supposed to be in charge, like say our our politicians, our civil rulers, they're generally speaking bad people who are bad at what they do. They are wicked and incompetent. And so, of course, people get anxious. We are surrounded by incompetency. We are surrounded by bad leadership. We are surrounded by elites who are just not elite at anything. We as Christians should be able to say to our culture and speak into this highly anxious culture we live in and say, look, there is no reason to be anxious because Jesus is king. There is no reason to be anxious because it's not like Jesus is out on the edge of his throne 
and biting his nails and hoping things will somehow work out. No, Jesus is reigning over all. He reigns supreme. And so think about this. There is no reason for the Christian ever to be fearful or stressed or anxious. If you know that Jesus is king, that will chase your anxiety away. If you will give thanks to Jesus for ruling over all, that will chase your anxiety away. It just just runs your anxiety right out of your heart. It just drives it right out. If you can abound with thanksgiving because you know Jesus is Lord. That's how you've received him, and now you're walking in that lordship. It takes care of your anxiety. There is no reason for the Christian to be anxious. Earthly rulers are going to fail us. Jesus will never fail us. That's the Christian message to an incredibly anxious culture. You received Christ with a thankful faith. Paul says, so now walk with a thankful faith. Walk behind his leadership, following after him. Live under his reign because he's Lord. Live in obedience to him. And what is the result going to be when you abound in thanksgiving like this? The result is going to be peace and joy. A peace that passes understanding and joy unspeakable. Wouldn't you love to have a peace that passes understanding? It's yours in Jesus, if you'll just take it. Wouldn't you love to have a joy unspeakable? A heart so full of joy you can't even put put it to word, put it into words? Scripture says that joy can be yours. If you will live under the reign of Jesus, if you will trust Jesus as your Lord. So, that being the case, even if you do find yourself in prison like Paul, you can still be full of thanksgiving. You can be full of thanksgiving because you know Jesus is Lord and in him you have everything. Now, skip ahead to chapter 3, the little bit we read there. Here, Paul weaves together thanksgiving. He weaves thanksgiving into daily life. He weaves thanksgiving into worship and work. Okay, those are the two main things we do, worship and work. And Paul weaves thanksgiving into both of them. In verse 16, echoing Psalm 100, Paul commands us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. In other words, he's saying when you sing those psalms, don't just mouth the words, sing them from the heart. Sing them like you mean them. The Psalter is full of songs of joyful praise and thanksgiving. So sing them with hearts that are full of thanksgiving. Make your heart match the words. That's worship. Okay. Paul says, turn your whole life into a song of praise to God's glory. Live out the psalms and the hymns that you sing. That's really his point. And then work in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Basically what Paul is saying here is you should do your daily work with a thankful heart because your work is being done ultimately for Jesus. Jesus is the boss you answer to. He's the one who assigned you this vocation. He gave you your station in life. Do your labors for him knowing he will reward you. Do your daily work in a spirit of thanksgiving. Even if your work is difficult, even if you're underpaid, even if your boss is difficult or lousy or the conditions harsh, whatever it is God's called you to do each day, whatever your daily vocation is, do your work with thanksgiving because the work itself is a gift. And Christ is your true master and he will use the labors of your hands to extend his kingdom. And then finally in chapter 4, 
Paul says, continue in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And then Paul goes on a little bit further from there. He says, pray for us that God may open a door for the word on account of which I am in prison. So Paul says, even though I'm in prison for preaching the word, pray that God would keep giving me opportunities to preach the word. Even if it means more suffering, that's what I want. So I want you to continue in prayer and be watchful because you could be persecuted too. But I also want you to pray for me, even though I'm already in prison, keep praying that God would open new opportunities. Okay, Paul here connects thanksgiving and prayer. Thanksgiving is just the, the language of prayer. You want a prayer language? Make thanksgiving your prayer language. Our prayers should be filled with thanksgiving. See, sometimes we think of prayer as just we bring our wish list to God, like we bring our Christmas list to Santa, you know, and that's kind of how we think of prayer. Well, prayer is not merely a set of requests. It's not merely a list of things that you would like for God to give you. Prayer is also, you could say, an itemized list of things that you are thanking God for having already given you. You know, don't, bring two lists to God, a list of things you want to see God do, but also a list of things you're thankful for. See, true prayer blends petition and praise, requests and thanksgiving. You know, here's a way to think about how you should pray. Make your peti- petitions and requests known to God, but wrap them up in thanksgiving. Don't just tell God what you want. Tell God what he's already done. Thank God for what he's already done, for what he's already given you. Don't just give God a list of things you want. Give him a list of things you're grateful for. This is really what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 when he says, do not be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Make your requests, yes, but wrap those requests up in thanksgiving. That's how you should pray. And further, think about this, the the context in which Paul's already been persecuted and the Colossians could be facing persecution. Paul wants the Colossians to be thankful in prayer, even in times of adversity. Again, that's why I think he says, be watchful in verse 2. And it's why he immediately then describes his own plight as a prisoner. It is a reminder that yes, hard times can come upon God's people. Yes, we can face all kinds of hardship And it can be very difficult to be thankful when you're going through a hardship. But you should be thankful nevertheless. You know, how can you thank God when you're being mocked or even imprisoned for being a Christian? How can you be thankful when you get a bad report from the doctor or when the money is really tight or when the child is sick or when a friend has hurt you? And yet Paul repeatedly says in his letters, be thankful in all circumstances. Not be thankful part of the time or in good circumstances. Be thankful in all circumstances, period. No exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. Now, I realize that's easier said than done. So how can you do it? Let's close with this. How can you be thankful in the midst of hardship? You can be thankful by trusting God's good plan, by trusting Christ to take care of you even in the midst of a trial. You can be thankful by remembering that God is God and you are not. And his ways are higher than your ways. And he's got a good purpose for you even when your life is full of trial and hardship. See, there are too many people who take this approach. They'll say, well, if I could understand what God is up to in my life, if only I knew what God is doing, then I could be thankful then I could trust him if I only understood what God is doing. And I've just got to say, no, it does not 
work that way. Think about it like this. Your brain is about this big, okay, right? Your brain weighs, what, like two or three pounds, okay? That, that, that's your brain. You can't fit God into your brain. You can't fit the universe into your brain. So why do you think your brain is going to understand everything that God is doing or everything that God is up to in the universe? Not only is your brain too small, but your brain's also fallen, warped by sin. So I've got news for you. You are just not going to understand all that God is doing. And yet you've got to trust God anyway. God's ways are higher than our ways. We're not going to understand what God is doing, but we've got to trust God. We've got to trust his word. We've got to trust Jesus who died and rose again for us. And when you trust God in this way, then you can be thankful in all circumstances, even in the hardest of times. When we are going through a hard time, we are tempted to fall into a victim mentality. To think, oh, I deserve better than this. I don't deserve all this pain and suffering. I am entitled to a better life. That way of thinking is a disaster. That kind of spirit of entitlement, that is the opposite of being thankful. And you will always be miserable if you have a spirit of entitlement because you'll never feel like you have enough. A victim mentality makes us into selfish narcissists. It makes us into the kind of people who wear everybody else around us out because we complain, we grumble, we only think about ourselves. And what happens if that's your approach? You can make a hard situation even worse. But again, think about Paul here. Paul says, even in prison, even in sickness, even in times of trial, give God thanks. And in giving God thanks, you free yourself of that spirit of entitlement in giving God thanks, you free yourself from the victim mentality. And frankly, that makes you a joy to be around no matter how hard your situation is. It drives out words of grumbling and it replaces those words of grumbling with words of praise. So you need to understand, thanksgiving is a weapon. Thanksgiving is a weapon you wield against the sins of despair and grumbling in your life. You want to overcome those sins? You want to get the victory? God's given you this weapon. He's put a sword in your hand. That sword is thanksgiving, and you can go do battle with it. The most painful part of your life is precisely where you need to work most at being thankful. What are the pressure points in your life, the places where you feel the most acute anxiety, stress, worry, anger? Those are the places you've got to work at being thankful. And don't think, oh, well, uh, Paul could be thankful from prison because he was an apostle. That Paul, boy, he was a super Christian. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Surely this can't be expected of me. No, that's not. Paul's writing to the Colossians, to all of them, and telling them to do the same thing he's doing. He's not some super Christian, you know, in a, in a different category because he's an apostle. You've got the same Holy Spirit Paul had. You've got the same Jesus at work in you that Paul had. You can be just as thankful in the midst of hardship as Paul was. See, everything we have is a gift. Everything comes from God and it is for our good and his glory. And knowing that anchors your life. Knowing that fills you with thankfulness. And so I know it's a cliche to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. This Thursday, gather with friends and family and give God thanks for his gifts. Give God thanks for his gifts on the table and around the table and beyond the table. Give God thanks for all of that. But don't settle 
for one Thanksgiving day a year? To live as a Christian means you make every day Thanksgiving day. You overflow with thankfulness. You abound with thankfulness. And that thankfulness, that brings joy and peace into your life. Giving thanks is what life is all about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.